So the idea of talking about folks who don't go to church and how to attract them has become one of the biggest things in all of Christian discourse right now. I can't tell you the amount of articles that come out from Christianity Today or, or really even our own denominational trade papers and everything about, oh, how do you attract folks who are not coming to church? And I'll say this has become a really interesting topic for us right here in our little corner of Jacksonville, Florida. It is actually part of the reason, and I don't know if you remember, a couple months ago, uh, we had an article in The Resident that featured us and five other churches. It was all talking about life during Easter. What was it like to be Easter people? And it was really interesting to me when you read most of those churches they're changing their names, they're changing their messaging, they're changing everything in order to reach the unchurched. It's a really cool thing to talk about. And we can understand why that would be an important goal here locally. Last count that we had, there are thousands of new apartment units being built, but literally you could throw a rock and land on the new uh, framing that's being built literally next door. But all up and down Phillips Highway, thousands of new units are coming online, which means thousands of people are going to be within a stone's throw of this church. Maybe we'd like to have them here. So let me, as a way of background, let's talk about this community. You see this uh, map up here. This is a map. If you see all those little dots, and I know it's a little hard to see, but if you see all those dots, that's you. All the members, we've, we've figured out where your addresses are, and we put them on a map. And you see that little space there that's shaded? Well, that's the majority of our membership. Interestingly enough, most of our members live within uh, about... Uh, five or ten minutes from the church. And honestly, most of y'all live on the riverside of Hendricks Avenue, and then it becomes San Jose, and some of you live on Beauclair, and you go down a little bit further. And I'm sorry for those folks who are in Mandarin. You're a little outside. But most of the folks in this church live in that little shaded area. And that shaded area is about 43,000 people. Did you know that the majority of our membership in that little area there 43,000 people. And I know I've said this before, but if you want to guess what the single largest denomination is in this 43,000, it's ones that say they are nuns. None and not spiritually affiliated comprises 32% of the folks in that small area comes out, because I did the math this morning, about 13,760 people. Now, there's another interesting statistic. 71% of the folks that live in this area don't attend church. They aren't actively participating in any church. That is 30,530 people. That's a pretty good ball game size, right? I mean, I don't think the jumbo shrimp stadium's that big. I mean, that's like a pregame. I mean, that's a preseason game with the Jaguars, right, if they're lucky. 
Interestingly enough, by the way, 6.8% of the people in this area identify actively as PCUSA. You know, that's like 3,000 people. So if we ever get worried, are there folks in our area that would go to a Presbyterian church? Until we see 2,800 people here on a Sunday, I'd say we've still got people to reach. So just keep that in the back of your mind. The numbers are looking good. But here's what's so fascinating. You know, we can talk all the statistics. We can talk about the unchurched. But rarely, if ever, do we ask the question, what do these folks need? What questions are they asking the church? It seems instead what we do is we think we have the magic formula, right? If we just say the right things, if we just do the right things, then people will want to come. It's, it's as if that we just think that the way that the world still continues to work is if we just have people to conform to our way of thinking, even if it's really cool and hip, well, that'll be enough to bring people to church. So instead, what I'd like to do over the next four weeks is actually ask the question, what do the folks that don't come to church, well, what are they asking of us who come to church? Now, I've been able to ask this in a couple different ways. One is, is we have access to this quadrennial American beliefs survey that asks questions literally, like, if you've never been a part of a church, why don't you go to church? I asked the question on Twitter a couple weeks ago. Got all sorts of interesting thoughts. And honestly, over the last 18 months, anytime I go meet with somebody who's not affiliated with South Jacks, conversation inevitably gets to this. And why don't you attend church? And what I've found is that you can boil this down basically to four major questions, which are the four major questions that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. The first one is, can I trust you? The second one is, will you answer the questions that I wrestle with? Third is, what if I don't believe anymore? And the fourth question is, are your priorities straight? If you take all the things that I've heard and I've researched and I've read and I've had conversations to, I truly believe that most of the conversations those who do not attend a church are asking can be boiled down to those four simple questions. Well, simple as in you can fit them on a slide. And so we're going to start this week with what I think is probably the toughest one of all of them. Can I trust you? And what I'd like us to think about as an answer is, it depends on our roadblocks and what we're willing to remove. So let's dig into the gospel. Now this is a familiar passage. If you've been around the block a few times when it comes to the lectionary or when it comes to reading your Bible, it's a familiar passage when we talk about individual sin. That if there is a part of us that is so likely to cause a transgression both in ourselves or to cause somebody else to stumble, according to Jesus, it would be better to just amputate oneself than to continue to devolve oneself into sin and also to cause someone else to stumble. Now, this hyperbolic language is truly striking. There were laws prohibiting this kind of thing in, in the Jewish text. So for Jesus to say this out loud, it would have been striking for the folks hearing it 
And honestly, this is one of those places where when people hear that, you're like, really, Jesus? Of course, we forget that Jesus has a tendency to be a little hyperbolic at times. And again, we talk about this for our individual sin. We're happy to talk about the places where we stumble, but I wonder if this could also be applied on a corporate level. You know, if we think about the scandals that have affected the church, and really, they're a dime a dozen now, it seems, especially ones that are related to abuse, we can see the consequences of a lack of trust. We can see how people might not find us very trustworthy. So many of these scandals often point to a need to retain institutional control and power. You know, the idea that if we were able to honor these stories of abuse, well, maybe it would destroy the denomination or it would destroy the church. If we were honest about our brokenness and perhaps we cut it off at the source, well, maybe we wouldn't have, or maybe people would stop giving or people would stop attending. And this is why it seems that most of the time, allegations are initially swept under the rug. At a point, it ultimately becomes about preservation of the body and leaving it intact and not actually removing what causes the sin. And here's the thing, it's not just the church in whole that's struggling, well, it's folks in my position too. Clergy are bouncing around right now at their lowest trust level ever. Thirty-seven percent of Americans trust clergy. Whew. I mean, thankfully, it's not like Congress level low, which is sitting at eight percent. Any of you who are nurses, by the way, most trusted profession, congratulations. So you should feel a little good about yourself. Clergy right now are somewhere in between judges and lawyers. Interpret that how you will. Because here's what I think the truth is, is that as clergy... We have a double burden, both personally and professionally. If we are projections of the institutions that we're a part of, then that means by nature, when we don't trust the institution, we don't trust the people who are the faces of it. And so that tells me that, yeah, there are some bad eggs all over the place, but in general, we've got an uphill battle. And when we become caretakers of institutions over removing stumbling blocks, we rightfully give people a reason to second guess. And certainly through this, we can also think beyond scandals, right? Because that's the low-hanging fruit about this conversation. But we just talk about trying to preserve the body over removing stumbling blocks. Fundamental to so many stories of people who started going to church when they were young and then they said, you know, I'm going to move that because, you know, tired of looking at that slide. <laughs> But fundamental to so many stories of those who don't attend church is that there are so many churches who throw up roadblocks about three-quarters of the way down the highway. 
I can't tell you how many stories of friends and colleagues of mine that fall in love with the church. Oh my gosh, the music is fantastic and that pastor preaches so well and I just feel at home here and my kids feel at home here. And then they're thinking about joining the church. And then they find out what that church truly believes. How truly understands the gospel. And then the question is, oh, wait a second. I don't know if I necessarily believe that. I don't know if my Bible feels the same way or my interpretation. But by that point, it's hard to U-turn in the middle of the highway when you've been going 75 the whole time. And so maybe folks just stay on the highway or when they finally crash because they realize the the stumbling blocks and the potholes are too much will they just fall off of the highway altogether and say what is the use of any of this because after all it's great to say love everyone always but what really does that mean if you don't fit within someone's definition of being saved right And at what point are all of those stumbling blocks actually part of the gospel, part of the good news of Jesus Christ, or rather just part of maintaining a human artifact, some sort of idol that we could say, look at our church stable and strong and similar and a hegemony of what we have created and not actually the good news of the gospel. And I think this is what in part Paul is trying to get to in his message in 1 Corinthians. Paul is telling us he has every right to earn his keep. In the the section before what I read, he lays out, hey, listen, you know, the, the Bible that we have, the Torah says, you know, the oxen that are working the fields get a chance to eat some of the oats that they're working through. He talks all the time about, don't the soldiers get paid? In the armies, don't these things happen all the time? The the church and the world, quote-unquote, rightfully provision for those in labor for their ends, even the animals. Yet Paul is acutely aware that at some point it may draw people to doubt the sincerity of the gospel. And so Paul, in his sort of bombastic, slightly arrogant, a little bit annoying, but always pastoral kind of way, says, you know what, if given the option between getting all that I can get and making sure that the gospel is available and free for everyone who needs it, I will pick the latter even to death. Now, we have actually, in the last 18 months since I've been here, wanted to live into this. It's why Ellen A. made a rule at the beginning of this year, that there will be no more between full-time salaried employees, a difference of more than 100% between the lowest paid and the highest paid person. Because I can't tell you how many churches I know about where the senior pastor, Joyce is nodding her head because she knows how true this is. How many senior pastors are making $100,000, $120,000, $150,000 a year and their administrative assistant who does double the work is barely scraping by? What does that say about the gospel? And so we decided that that would never happen here. That if somebody is making $50,000, if somebody's making $35,000 on a full-time salary, my salary can't be any more than $70,000. And I'm proud to say that we are comfortably within that range. 
because we put our money where our mouth was when it came to doing the right thing about the gospel. It may also be why, as much as I'd love to, and as much as I know that others who in my position have done this, it's why a pastor luxuriating at times at Epping or San Jose on his or her own membership might cause somebody to question the work of the gospel. Now, certainly, I'm not saying the rest of y'all shouldn't enjoy that, but you know what? Like, I've got some things I've got to show. Now, please, invite me all the time. I will have lunch with y'all anytime. And really, I like, I mean, I don't think this is a secret, but Epping, better food than San Jose. Hope I didn't make any enemies there, but what would it say if the senior pastor of a Presbyterian church in San Marco spent most of his days with his family enjoying the time at Epping and San Jose over perhaps the work of the gospel? So please, invite me all the time, but if you wonder why I won't have a membership myself that's trying to live under Paul's good guidance. Because in the end, dear friends, as we think about these thousands of people all around us and all these people who have tossed in the towel about Jesus, unfortunately, because the only way that they saw Jesus was here in the church and we did a poor job of representing Jesus, it's all about building foundations of trust to say clearly that we are consistent with what we believe, we are who we say we are, and when we see barriers and inconsistencies, we will do all we can to remove them. So if we are truly to be a church that attracts people who aren't affiliated and are asking the question, how do I trust you? Can I trust you? We must be trustworthy first. We must be willing to tear down every single possible thing that could lead to an inconsistency in our word, in our message, even if that means amputating the very extensions of ourselves because it is better to do the right thing, the trustworthy thing, the holy thing, and be incomplete. Do you not think that a church that says we were so committed to opening our hearts and minds and spirits to a community that we decided to knock down all our buildings doesn't have some resonance to those folks who have never found a church home again? I promise you, it does. Because I've had firsthand conversations with folks that it does. Doing what we're doing right now, dear friends, has a deep gospel impact beyond what we even think it does. Because this kind of trustworthiness, the type of trustworthiness that invites families to bring their children and to care for them and to raise them up, to live into all of our ordination vows, the things you said to me when I was installed and the things I said to you when I was installed, all the things that we want to do, it requires us to ask what matters most. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything short of that, anything short of that should be put on the chopping block as quickly as possible. No matter what. 
And those of us who represent the gospel, and I am part in turning this back on myself, although I know there's quite a few of you who are ordained in this crowd. So in part, I'm talking to y'all too. Ruling elders as well. Every single one of us needs to think about what we represent when we tell the story. We might need to think about what we're willing to let go of to make that as crystal clear as possible. Do you know what, though? I can tell you that it works. I'm going to mention this tomorrow, but did you know last year we were 10% of the baptisms in this presbytery? Do you know we were almost 10% of the new members and we didn't even have a confirmation class this year? Being honest, being trustworthy. You know, it matters. And I think for a world that is so hungry right now, to be loved, to be accepted, to feel like there is a safe place to call home. I imagine if we just did the gospel, we'd be shocked at the amount of people who will heave a sigh of relief and say, finally, there's a safe home. Thanks be to God.